Hi listener, the episode you are about to listen to contains sensitive information relating to childbirth. If such topics are difficult for you, please do find a safe time and place in which to listen. She said, I know you're very tired, but you have to make this last effort to push this baby out. If you don't, I will have to use forceps. I don't want to do that because it will be disturbing for the child and for you and I'd rather not do it. When I tell you to push, you have to push and we have to do this together. So, of course, it was a real joint effort because everybody was pushing. Every time she said, okay, now push, it was like Peter was pushing and she was pushing and the nurse was pushing and we were all pushing. And it was very funny because after every push, then we would get a bit hysterical and laugh about it. And I can't remember feeling the pain more than the experience. The experience was foremost in my mind. You just heard my mother describing the birth of her first child, my older sister, back in 1983. On each episode of The Darkest Light, I talk to mothers about their journey through pregnancy, childbirth and parenting. These are the stories you don't often hear, the ones women aren't encouraged to tell. These are the stories I wish I had heard before deciding to become a mother. They're out there, floating around in scraps and whispers. This podcast is an attempt to gather the pieces. I'm your host, Kanya Dialmeda. Thanks for joining me. Whenever my mother talks about giving birth, she comes alive. She needs very little encouragement, actually. She'll tell the whole story at any time to anyone who's willing to listen. Her attitude towards birth is what inspired this episode, smiling while pushing. By contrast, my memories of my son's birth are dark. In July, we celebrated his first birthday, and in the middle of the revelry, I kept having flashbacks to the night he was born. There was one image in particular that kept coming back to me. I'm lying on a hospital bed in the labor room, with a cannula in my vein, an epidural in my spine, a blood pressure monitor strapped to my arm, a fetal heart rate monitor wrapped around my belly, and a catheter. I can't feel a thing. There's no excitement, no joy in the room, only beeping machines. For months after my baby was born, I couldn't shake these memories. Just the sight of him would take me back to that night. There were times I really couldn't bear to be alone in a room with him. I could be watching him sleep and all of a sudden I'd be crying. Sometimes I didn't even know why and I didn't always know how to make it stop. I only recently learned that there's a term for what I was experiencing, birth trauma. It refers to the physical injuries but also the psychological damage sustained during labor and delivery. There's an organization in the UK called the BTA, the Birth Trauma Association which estimates that about 30,000 women a year in the UK alone experience some kind of trauma during birth. We don't have comparable statistics for Sri Lanka, so I'm not sure how prevalent the problem is here. But based on interviews I've conducted with over a dozen people, I'd guess our numbers are quite high. The symptoms of birth trauma are similar in some ways to what survivors of violence or sexual assault have described. Panic attacks, depressive episodes obsessive flashbacks, all of which make it pretty difficult to bond with your child. Any number of events can cause birth trauma. Negative interactions with doctors and nurses, 
emergency procedures like unplanned C-sections, maybe the absence of a support partner. Most traumatic births, however, share a commonality, unmet expectations. And that's where my mother's story comes in. We gave birth just one generation apart, but our experiences were so different, they may as well have taken place in different centuries. I wasn't really nervous, I was excited about it. Since my doctor was my aunt, I wasn't really anxious about anything. I just felt very confident having her there. She was a GP, general practitioner. Worked in a hospital, a private hospital for many years and then opened up her own clinic. Dealt with everything, basically, from a child with cough and a cold to family health. She was amazingly calm. She never showed any kind of agitation or And I guess from the time I was very small, she was my doctor, so I never questioned anything about her and would never have thought of going to anybody else except her. It's lucky she had that kind of relationship with her doctor because my mother's pregnancy was quite long drawn out. It went two weeks past my due date. Uh, She, at that time, maybe, they didn't think it was necessary to induce labours and things like that. So she just said, you have to wait till your time and your time will come and... Because you see, at that time, we didn't have mobile phones. So it was only a phone in your house. And she, strangely, lived in a small apartment. She didn't even have a landline. And she would give our home telephone number, my home telephone number, because we had a telephone. And she would come there and wait for the hospital to call. And this could happen at any time of day or night. And she would just sleep on the couch till the hospital called her. And then she would get in her car, drive to the hospital, do her delivery and go home. Because she was a woman who would come and be uncomfortable for the better part of the night just to wait for the right time to go and deliver that baby. She would never have thought that she should go there and induce this labour and finish it and get home by nine so that she can have a good night's sleep. I should mention that this doctor was Manarani Saravanamuttu, an iconic figure in Sri Lanka's women's movement. Her son, my uncle Richard Disoiza, was abducted and assassinated during the Marxist insurgency of 1990, a few years after I was born. Manarani's life then took a tragic turn. She had spent most of her career delivering babies, but she spent the end of her life heading the Mother's Front, a mass movement of 25,000 women whose sons were disappeared. That was the kind of woman she was, incredibly strong, steady and poised. Throughout her pregnancy, my mother never questioned her aunt's word. There was implicit trust between them. And of course, just as her aunt assured her, my mother's time eventually came. When it started, it was very exciting. I quickly called my aunt, told her about it. She said, don't get excited because this is going to take some time. (laughs) Take your time, walk up and down, monitor the duration of the contractions and how far apart they are. And I will see how it goes. So I was at home for nearly 24 hours after I started getting the contractions. Towards the end of that 24-hour period, her waters broke and she made her way to the nursing home with my father, Peter. But as with many first-time labours, the end wasn't quite yet in sight. My cervix was not dilating, so that became a bit of a concern. And she had advocated that I shouldn't have just one baby, that I should have at least two. So she said, if we do a cesarean, then very often the next one will also have to be a cesarean. Let's try and see how far we can go to try and make this a natural birth. Both of us were in agreement with that. And in the meantime, she did consult a obstetrician. 
she was she had him on call she also told uh, peter that he should sit by me and just monitor my contractions and she said i'm going home because if i stay here and watch this process going on i might feel like i should do the cesarean faster so she said i'll just go home and the hospital will call me if they feel that it's an emergency otherwise you would just sit by her side and monitor her contractions then i went into active labor but i was very very tired because i had been going the whole night with these strong contractions didn't fall asleep at all i would have fallen asleep but just you know brief periods she told me she said i know you're very tired but you have to make this last effort to push this baby out because otherwise if you don't i will have to use forceps i don't want to do that i don't want to do that because it will be disturbing for the child and for you and i'd rather not do it when i tell you to push you have to push and we have to do this together so of course it was a real joint effort because everybody was pushing yeah but every time she said okay now push it was like peter was pushing and she was pushing and the nurse was pushing and we were all pushing and it was very funny because I, after every push then we would get a bit hysterical and laugh about it and i can't remember uh feeling the pain more than the experience the experience was foremost in my mind no fear no fear at all yeah and then finally after all this 24 hours of labor i managed to push freya out uh, the cord was around wrapped around her twice freya was wide awake when she came out i have never um, i mean heard of a baby who was with her eyes wide open and looking all around and i took one look at her and thought no i'm not going to even look at this child because i just want to sleep throughout all of this my mother said her aunt was chastising my father for not bringing his camera along because he was a great amateur photographer so when i was born 3 years later he was all ready to capture the whole process it wasn't easy because i apparently arrived in a big rush right on my due date i went to see her in the morning and she checked me out and she said okay go home pack your bag and get to hospital by lunch time i think by that time you should have the baby i remember going to the hospital and then the nurses said oh she seems to be having strong contractions and the attendants t- uh, took me to the bathroom because i said i needed to go to the loo she put me on the toilet seat and she said i better go and get the baby's clothes she left me sitting there and took off which was ridiculous because i could have just had the baby sitting there were you comfortable in that i was quite comfortable position yeah and then anyway they put me on the bed and then they quickly called my aunt who was planning to come a couple of hours later but it was happening and she had to rush there and she basically was getting her gloves on when the head appeared do you remember the pushing part of it hardly because it happened so fast but there so are fast. photographs oh, there are and if you look at the photographs you will realize that the photographs are from the point of the head appearing and it happened very fast after that so luckily uh, she was being very accommodating to peter and she said come and stand at, on this side take it from this angle look at it you know she was like really into it now those photographs are kind of legendary not only have i seen them my friends have seen them and one of them hasn't recovered to be fair he was only about 12 years old at the time and my mother was a teacher in our school but as graphic as they were i loved those pictures and when you grow up hearing about and seeing those moments you can't help but make certain assumptions i assumed that doctors who delivered babies were some variation of my aunt 
I assumed that nurses and attendants pushed with you, to use my mother's expression. I assumed, if I ever had a baby, that I would be given plenty of time and support. That I would be one of those people who would be smiling while pushing. When I was 39 weeks pregnant, my OBGYN informed me she was leaving the country for a conference. She was scheduled to depart a day after my due date and return four days later. I was crushed. Over the course of nine months, I'd put all my trust into her hands. I didn't want anyone but her to deliver my baby. She assured me she was trying to find a good replacement, but it wasn't easy. None of her colleagues was willing to, and I quote, take me on as a patient. Why not? She had found replacement OBs for all of her other patients, including women with extremely high-risk, complicated pregnancies, women requiring experts who specialized in fetal maternal medicine. Other than being diagnosed with gestational diabetes in my second trimester, I had absolutely no problems. I was at full term. My baby was perfectly positioned, head down in the birth canal. All our tests and scans had come back normal. It was my birth plan, she said. Her colleagues were uncomfortable with it. They felt I was too adamant about wanting a vaginal birth without medical interventions or pain relief. I knew from multiple friends and relatives that obstetricians in the private sector didn't always support the natural labor process. They tended to favor either elective C-sections or inductions of labor on a specific date. And my doctor and I had discussed this at length, actually, how fewer and fewer practitioners were willing to accept the time commitment, being on call for 24, 36, sometimes 48 hours. What I hadn't realized was that natural births were not only viewed as an inconvenience, they had become a liability, a responsibility that nobody seemed to want to take on. I finally found a young doctor who was on board with my plan, but because he hadn't seen me through the bulk of my pregnancy, he insisted on a fetal scan to ensure that nothing was amiss. I went to my usual OB on my due date, hoping the whole time that I would spontaneously go into labor. But I knew that it was very unlikely because, according to some studies, only 4% of first-time mothers actually go into labor on their due date. Anyway, we're doing the scan, and instead of the usual, looks good, everything is normal, you know, she paused and said, I'm seeing something. Something. What something? Apparently, an unusual distribution of blood to the middle cerebral artery of the baby's brain. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of two things, she said. A. Nothing. All babies' brains show erratic patterns when the mother is preparing to go into labor. Or B. An indication of a more serious condition that could result in a stillbirth. She had dropped the S word. When a doctor utters it, especially at the end of your pregnancy... You basically cede all power to them. Maybe there are stronger women out there who might have done things differently. As for me, I said, Doctor, tell me what needs to happen right now. She recommended induction that very night. For anyone unfamiliar with the term, induction involves one or a series of measures to artificially stimulate labor. Sometimes a hormonal gel is applied to the cervix to speed up dilation. You can receive an intravenous infusion of a synthetic version of a hormone called oxytocin, which the body actually secretes naturally, but in very low doses during labor. 
Some doctors might manually break the water bag to jumpstart contractions. There's a plethora of possibilities. I talked to over a dozen women for this podcast, including people whose lives were probably saved by early induction of labor, and those who opted for it because they just wanted to get the whole thing over with. Personally, I was dead against it. The World Health Organization has a long-standing recommendation when it comes to induction. There should be a clear medical necessity for it. That's because each of the methods used to induce labor carries its own set of risks and complications for both the mother and the fetus, which often feed into each other. So one step down the road can lead to what the World Health Organization has called a cascade of related interventions. To this day, I'm not convinced that there was any medical necessity for me to induce my labor. The reason was entirely social. My doctor had a plane to catch. I didn't believe that any other practitioner would support me the way she would. So my choice was simple. Should I trust my body and my instincts, both of which said, wait, this baby isn't ready to be born? Or should I trust the expert, the professional, who said, now? From the moment I admitted myself into the hospital, I felt like I was in a battle. First, I was forcibly shaved. The pubic shave prior to a vaginal birth is a controversial practice that doesn't have a lot of proven medical benefit to a laboring person. In fact, the World Health Organization does not recommend it. Next, a male ward doctor insisted on doing a cervical check. I told him my obstetrician had just examined my cervix, but against my wishes, he performed the internal vaginal exam, which was extremely painful. And later when my doctor heard about it, she was furious. But of course, by then, it was too late. He then inserted a gel called prostaglandin 2, which is supposed to soften the cervix for labor. One of its side effects is nausea, which I felt immediately. I was hooked up to a monitor to assess whether or not the gel was effectively stimulating my contractions. In order for the nurses to read the machine, I had to lie completely still. But I knew that moving around was very important to help manage the pain and also to help the baby descend into the birth canal in the proper position. So every half an hour, I would have to kind of beg and plead with the nurses to let me take it off and walk around. After several hours, they said the gel wasn't working effectively. So I was then given an intravenous drip of syntocin, which is the synthetic hormone I mentioned earlier. For some women, it causes highly exaggerated contractions because it's essentially being administered in a higher dose than what the body produces. I don't know how to describe the pain of those contractions except to say it felt like I was being pulled apart, bone by bone. I had gone to prenatal yoga and breathing and birth preparation classes and every one of my coaches told me contractions come in waves, that the pain escalates, peaks and then subsides. But that never happened. I don't know if it was the drugs or what, but there was no ebb and flow. The pain was just constant. I was offered an epidural. I initially turned it down because I knew how important it was for me to stay mobile. I was really concerned that being confined to a bed could lead to a compromised fetal position, which meant a higher chance of surgical delivery with instruments like forceps or vacuum extractors. After 13 hours, I was barely dilated 3 centimeters. The next step was to manually break my water bag. The minute that happens, you are running against the clock because the fetus is no longer protected by the sac of amniotic fluid. That means a heightened risk of infection or complications with the umbilical cord, which are potentially life-threatening to the baby. Meanwhile, there's the added risk that the severity and frequency of these artificial contractions are causing fetal distress. So I had to have constant monitoring, 
both of my blood pressure and the baby's heart rate. Throughout all of this, most of the support staff in the hospital were kind of indifferent to me. Ordinarily, I'm not a person who craves physical affection. But during my labor, I really yearned for it. Mostly, I wanted someone to just hold my hand. My husband was with me and he was an absolute rock. But what I really needed, I think, was the company and care of other women. There was one nurse on duty in the labor room who was kind, even a little maternal in her manner. When her shift ended, she came over to tell me she was leaving. And I remember clinging on to her and saying, please don't go. But of course, she had to. At that point, I just cracked and begged for an epidural. I thought it would be a relief. But the sudden absence of not only pain, but all feeling from the waist down was actually quite distressing. I couldn't stand. I had to be catheterized. I had this strange sense that I was only half a person and it felt pretty terrible. Finally, around 10 p.m., close to 24 hours after starting the induction, my doctor walked in. It was time to start pushing. I requested that she turn off the epidural because I wanted to be able to feel something. I, I wanted to push with my contractions. I obviously don't remember everything about my labor. I had to talk to a lot of people to piece this story back together. But this is the part I recall very clearly. My doctor was telling me to push. The pediatrician had just walked into the room and he was standing near the door. And every time I pushed, my doctor would look at him and shake her head as if to say like, no. It's not happening. My baby had assumed a compromised position in the birth canal. The doctor said she needed to perform an episiotomy, which is a surgical cut made at the opening of the birth canal to give the baby more room to emerge. So I said, yeah, okay, do it. That didn't help. Then she said, I need to use forceps. And I again said, fine, go for it. That didn't work either. So she said, I need to use a vacuum extractor now. Nothing. It was then that I remembered something my husband mentioned as we were walking into the hospital in the rain. Out of the blue, he said, remember, if you're having trouble during the pushing stage, lift up your hips and rotate them from side to side. So I did. I closed my eyes and pictured my mother's face from the photos. And I imagine my aunt was in the room with me too. I must have suddenly gone very quiet because the doctor and even the nurses started saying, you can scream if you want, you know, it's okay. But I didn't need to. Instead, I was smiling while pushing. And that's how Khalil was born. They handed him to me briefly. Then he was gone. I don't know why or where. One second the room was full and then suddenly empty. My husband, the doctors, the nurses, everyone vanished. And I just started shivering uncontrollably. I thought I was having a seizure because it didn't stop for a long time. A nurse came in to check something on the computer screen, I think, and I had to hold my face with my hands in order to speak to her. That's how badly I was shaking. I said, if anything happens to my baby, I'll die. He needed oxygen, but he was going to be fine. My husband came in and out to update me. My mother got to come in for a minute, but the nurses kind of hustled her out. My doctor came in to stitch me up. I needed over a dozen stitches, so it took a while. The shivering didn't stop. There was all this activity going on around me, but I felt like I was invisible. No one was really telling me what was happening. Later on, they brought Khalil back to me. I got to nurse him and sing to him and hold him. Two days later, we left the hospital and went home.
When you leave a hospital with a living child, you are expected to be grateful, to get back on your feet and get on with the business of being a parent. This is what statistics on maternal health are counting. They are counting living mothers and living children. They are not counting the number of people who are leaving injured, in pain, traumatized. They are not counting the people who look at their children and remember just dark times. You will, of course, eventually come to see the light. But it's not the light they told you about. At least, it wasn't for me. Before I could enjoy the simple pleasure of being with my child, I had to make my way through a maze of regret and guilt and grief. Because for a long time, though I was so grateful for my son, I was in mourning for something I felt was stolen from me. The ability to have a peaceful, joyful birth. If you'd like to share your birth story on this podcast, please contact me on thedarkestlightpodcast at gmail.com. None of the information contained in this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you have questions about your health or your child's health, please contact a medical professional. You can also check our bio for links and resources. To learn more about our show, follow us on Instagram at The Darkest Light Podcast. Don't forget to click subscribe. The Darkest Light is produced by Devana Senanayaka. Music is by Kriti. Mixing and mastering by Zainab Wahid.